0: This is our second episode in our four-part Leading for Justice series. In the last episode, we talked about the impacts of shared leadership and the research on why we should invest in this approach to leadership specifically. If you haven't listened to that one, go ahead and listen to it and then come back when you're ready to this one. In this episode, we're talking about how students experience school and how we measure student perceptions and experiences. It's super important to ask students instead of assuming we know what the students are thinking or experiencing. Let's dive into this episode. So the first thing we need to determine when we are trying to figure out how to measure student experience in our school is determining what exactly it is that we want to measure. So let's consider the constructs or the themes or the topics, whatever you wanna use. Constructs is a very survey design language thing. But you want to think about the constructs you want to measure as you either select an existing survey or you design your own survey. Either option is totally fine, and we'll talk about what to look for and what to think about, regardless of which path you choose for your measurement instrument. For example, when I talk about the construct, let's take the construct of belonging. How would we actually turn it into a scale, a scale being a series of survey questions about the same topic. They all measure belonging. So we wanted to accurately measure the student sense of belonging. We have to translate kind of what belonging means into some survey questions that students would then answer or families could answer, right? This could be a survey for anyone. And we just wanna make sure that we're doing it well, right? Or if we are looking at existing surveys that they do it well. And the reason that we want to have a scale, like a set of questions around a topic, as opposed to just asking one question, is because it's far more accurate to have a series of questions, maybe just three to five questions that ask about different aspects of the construct for this example, belonging. Because if you just ask, do you feel like you belong at school? What happens then is students could interpret the idea of belonging in different ways. There are a lot of different aspects to the construct of belonging and a lot of different ways we could interpret it. And so students may be responding to one piece of that without giving you a full picture and knowing that everyone's going to respond to different aspects. We can't really pinpoint what's going on and what's influencing belonging and what kind of attributes of belonging students are experiencing or not. So I want to take you through an example of how to do this. We talked about how not to do it, but let's talk about how to do this. Panorama Education is a wonderful organization that Full Transparency I contract for, and they are great, but they have a wonderful student survey. It is available on their site for free, so you could actually download it and use it yourself if you'd like. And within this survey, they have several scales or topics. One of those topics is belonging. So let's actually look at their belonging scale and see how they do this. How do they accurately measure student belonging? So that scale, again, it's a series of questions. It's not just one question. They use five questions and each of them measure belonging in some way. So here are the five questions in the order that they appear on the student survey. First question, how well do people at your school understand you as a person? And then of course students would have a response array of uh, you know a, a series of five responses kind of on a scale, each of them labeled with the response option. How connected do you feel to the adults at your school is the second question. Third question, how much respect students in your school show you? How much do you matter to others at this school? And lastly, overall, how much do you feel like you belong at your school? So the survey in asking those questions, in particularly asking them in that order, builds a more complete understanding of what belonging is by asking those questions in that order. So it kind of teaches the survey taker what belonging is. It focuses them in on specific attributes of belonging and then culminates in a question about the overall sense of belonging once we've kind of taken students through the definition. So that's what a really great scale does. It enables not only the respondents to give better information, but it enables us when we look at the results to look at the differences in specific aspects of belonging. So one example that comes to mind, I've worked with a number of school districts whose students reported feeling very connected to adults. They had very high favorability responses when it came to that particular question, But when it came to the question about feeling respected by students, it was much lower favorability. So the belonging score overall might indicate one thing, but when we look into the pieces of what kinds of belonging are you feeling and what stakeholders or what school experiences are influencing that belonging, we get a very detailed picture, which then enables us to focus more concretely on a solution that would address the specific thing going on. So first step is to define the construct or constructs, if you want to measure more than one, that you want to measure. And if you're creating your own survey, I find it really helpful to do some research here. So ask what the research and researchers have said about this construct. What are the different pieces of the construct? How do researchers define it? What language do they use? scholars' job is to go through the process of curating all the theory and research that's out there in literature reviews. And so it makes them really good sources of thoughtfully detailed, but also succinct definitions of the construct. And then you could pick language and attributes of the construct from there. So I think that's a really great place to start. You can, of course, define your own constructs and come up with your own definition of things that you really want to measure. But I think this is a good starting point. And then you can agree or disagree for your own context. The next piece I want to talk about is how to and why you might want to curate scales from existing surveys. So if you're thinking about creating your own survey, you don't need to start from zero. You can borrow scales from existing surveys. And I say scales because I would pull the complete scales, so all of the items that measure one topic, rather than picking individual questions you like. Remember, all of them make up a detailed picture of that construct or topic. So we want to take them as a set. Often validation studies and reliability studies of these scales are done at the scale level. So that's a really important thing to know, oh, this is relied and valid. I need to use it as written in this way. So you want to take the whole thing. And you can, to start, you can borrow one of my skills or more than one of my skills. So I have the personal, interpersonal, and organizational student leadership capacity building skills. And you can actually grab that. That's the freebie for this episode. If you're checking out the blog post or looking at the show notes, that's going to be linked there. You can also use one or more of Panorama's skills. Again, they're on their website for free. So that belonging scale we just looked at, you can pick that out of Panorama's student surveys and turn it into kind of a a piece of your own survey. Their survey is much longer than just the belonging piece, but you can take those five questions and put them into something you're developing along with other questions you create or curate from other sources. I also encourage you as you're kind of creating, if that's the path you choose, if you're creating your own survey or adapting an existing survey or curating scales from different places in this way, I encourage you to add a few open-ended questions. They're time-intensive to sort through and analyze in the back end when you're looking at all the data collected, but they are a wonderful way to ask students for more detail about their item or scale responses, right? Because they're just selecting like a radio button on a multiple choice question. That's not a lot of information. You may want to know more. And so open-ended questions that follow a question or a scale like that, would be a great place for students to be able, optionally perhaps, to elaborate. Also open-ended questions can be a great place to invite students to share what actions the school could take to improve in a particular area. So what could we do to improve belonging following the belonging skill of questions? Or what is the school doing really well right now in terms of belonging or in terms of whatever construct you're measuring? These are great questions to create on your own because you can then personalize them for your context, use language that your students are familiar with, and really get to the things that you specifically want to learn about. So that's kind of thinking about how to use what's already out there. Thinking about the constructs, how do we measure them? How do we curate? If you are trying to curate a scale and you're kind of wondering, well, What makes a good scale? What makes a good survey? Or you're creating your own and you're thinking, I want to make it in a way that's really valuable and valid and reliable. I want to briefly talk to you about how to do that, right? How to choose a quality survey or design your own quality survey. So I'll walk us through just a few principles of survey design. This would be a deep dive on all of the various researchers and theories out there, but I'm going to just take us through a few. Of course, one of the things you can do, which I won't talk about here, is use research reports that include the statistics that I spoke about in terms of reliability and validity with regard to the survey. But I know for most folks, I think reviewing some general principles would feel more immediately practical and doable rather than advising you to just go read a bunch of research data for each of the surveys that are possibly out there. And I want to borrow again from Panorama Education and their research team under the leadership of Dr. Hunter Gelbach has created a wonderful survey design checklist. I'll link that in the blog post of this episode so you can check it out if you're interested. I'm going to pull a couple of those recommendations from that list and then I'm going to add in some thoughts of my own here. So let's start with what makes a good survey item or question. So again, I mentioned this earlier, the survey should use scales, not single items to measure a construct. So again, that means students are responding to multiple items or questions on the same topic, not just one question per topic. That gives us a more robust, accurate measurement. The other thing to think about when we're looking at specific questions is we wanna avoid negative wording. So a negatively worded question or statement is one in which if a student responds that they disagree, that that's actually a positive thing. So for example, An item like, I rarely feel like I belong, we would say it's a really good thing if students say, I strongly disagree with that statement, right? Mm -hmm. I rarely feel like I belong. No, we don't want them to agree with that. But it's cognitively challenging for students or any respondents to switch gears like this if it's been like the answers on the right-hand side of the list or at the bottom of the list are the positive ones, right? And now all of a sudden, the positive is on the other side. The other piece of this is it's actually harder to compute a score for the scale or the the survey as a whole, because you as the data analyst who looks at these results, you're going to need to reverse code the responses to those types of questions. So for example, if I'm numerically adding up on, let's say students are responding to a five point scale. So like if it was strongly disagree to strongly agree Then strongly disagree, if that's not a favorable response, would get one point. The strongly agree favorable response gets five points. And so it's way easier to just add up, okay, everything on the right-hand side is all agree. That's all positive. Everything's a five over here. Now, all of a sudden, you have to say, okay, it's actually worth five points if they strongly disagree on this negatively worded item because I got to reverse code it. It gets really complicated really fast, and so I encourage you to avoid that negative wording in the items. Let's now talk about response options. I briefly kind of mentioned that in the last piece, but students should be asked to respond using a continuum of answers, not a yes-no, and also there's debate about how many answers should be on the continuum. I won't get into that here, but it's ideal to have a continuum, because then you're measuring a more precise degree of favorability, agreement, frequency, whatever you're asking about. The other piece of this is we want to make sure that all the response options are labeled with words. A lot of times, we'll see surveys that ask students to respond on a scale of 1 to 5, but they don't actually say what each of the numbers means. Even if you say what the 1 means and the 5 means, it's really up for interpretation what the 2, 3, and 4 mean. And so that's going to result in some imprecise data because different kids and different respondents are going to respond and think about those numbers in different ways. just want to be just really clear about what each response means. The next thing to think about is the survey length and also the order of the questions. Kind of how is the survey organized? For the first piece, keep it short. I usually aim for surveys to take no more than 10 minutes to complete. If you are doing some research where you're validating a scale, that's gonna be a different story because you have to put out like a ton of extra items to make sure that the ones you're selecting are the most valuable. Um, But for a finished product that's going directly to students, that's the practical piece that we're talking about here. 10 minutes is a long time to be really focused on the survey. So let's try to aim for that as, as a max. The other thing I would say, and I see so many surveys that don't do this. Um, and my chair of my dissertation committee, who is a survey research expert, she recommended this. And I think it is wonderful advice. She said, you know, we want to actually think about surveys as a conversation. And so she said, ask the most important questions early in the survey. Because survey fatigue is real, sometimes people won't get to the last few questions. That's part of it, right? We want to make sure the most important questions are asked up front. We don't want to put, for example, demographic questions first. They should come at the very end. It's super important to ask about the survey topic, whatever that is, belonging, leadership opportunities immediately, right off of the bat. Because not only will they maybe not get to it, but it's also just how you would have an engaging conversation with someone, right? You would hook them in with an engaging question. You're not going to ask the when you meet a person, the first thing you're not gonna, you're going to ask is like, Give me all of the details of your life and the things that are like all of your aspects of your identity and get really, you know, personal with things you may not want to actually share right off the bat. And so we want to ask the engaging questions first, whatever the topic is about. And then later we'll get to the demographic questions and potentially leave those as optional, right? If people don't want to respond or if that might identify them, we want to make sure that they don't feel compelled to give that information. Now, the last piece I want to talk about is implementing the survey. So, one of the things that's really important to do is to communicate the importance of the survey. For example, it'll help us improve your experience at school, um, you know, and make sure this is happening. We will take action on whatever data we get from this survey. So, we're not just asking you for your opinion, we plan to analyze it thoughtfully in partnership, ideally with students and teachers and families, and we're gonna act on it. And if you say this, which I think is a great idea to say it, but you have to back it up. You have to actually do it. That's really critical. We can't say we're gonna act on it, we're gonna use this data and then not use it because then we've destroyed whatever trust was built and no one's gonna respond favorably to the next time you ask them to complete a survey. Also, I suggest using the introductory, um, what I usually would say would be like a consent page of the survey to highlight why it's important. So yes, you can say in the body of an email or as you're introducing the survey to the front of the class, you know, this is important because, so give that verbal introduction or, you know, contextual introduction in that sense. But then immediately once they get the survey, you can have that reminder on the first page. Again, for folks who may have not been listening or who didn't hear you or who didn't read through the whole email that you sent about why it was important. And also, again, how you plan to analyze and take action based on the resulting data. Have that information on the first page. Don't make it you know, like a huge, huge multi-paragraph thing, but communicate it succinctly and clearly and just remind folks why it's important to take the survey. The other thing I would do is to dedicate time within the school day to take the survey. If, if you're serving students, of course, if you're serving family members, you might wanna dedicate time or space during an open house night. So you're inviting families to complete the survey while they're there or while they're, if they're virtually there, you know, they're taking the time to think about students' engagement in school. This might look like in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the survey window how many uh, times the survey is, is open, like how long the survey is open. That's one piece, right? I, I wouldn't leave it open too long. And I would remind folks a lot before they complete it. I think sometimes people just forget, right? Or a student is absent during survey time. And then we we'll want to give people multiple opportunities to take it. So survey open could be, you know, a week or two. Um, it might It might be longer if you so choose, but I think that's usually a good range. And then the other piece of when is the survey available to take A lot of schools will wonder, how often do I give out a survey? And so, especially schools who want to measure growth over time, they really want that time point one, time point two within the same school year. Um, And sometimes they're wondering, you know, what if I, do I do it monthly? Like, what if I want to measure growth more often? And so my recommendation is we want to survey stakeholders as often as you're able to take action on the results, because again... We don't wanna break that trust. We want everyone who's sitting down to take the survey to be thoughtful about the responses, to know the action will be taken as a result. And if it's not, you're not gonna get accurate data. You're not gonna get the same kind of high, ideally it would be a high number or a high percentage of respondents or people who complete the survey. So it might be once in the fall, once in the spring, right? We we don't wanna do it more often if we can't act on the data more often. So those are the basics of survey creation, evaluation, and implementation. And I'm really excited to see what folks do with this, what surveys or skills you select or curate, what you create, um, and the data that you get. Like, What do you learn and how are you taking action on it? Speaking of how you're taking action, we are going to continue with this series in the next episode, talking about how to create shared governance structures. So what does that look like in action? And the following week, we'll talk about data analysis. So once you get all that data, How do you analyze it thoughtfully through an adaptive leadership lens? If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do it now so you don't miss the rest of the episodes in the series. One more thing before you go. I want to tell you about my new six-week hyper-focused group coaching program just for leaders who want to set up and sustain shared leadership structures that amplify student voice. Each week, we meet for 60 minutes to learn new concepts and skills, share implementation successes, and apply research-based approaches to address challenges. Sign up to meet with me and learn more at calendly.com slash lindsaybethlions. The program will be open for enrollment through December 22nd, 2021.